Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. The preliminaries and pleasantries of a new Congress and a new administration are now concluded. With much preliminary and a dearth of pleasantness, uh, the inauguration, the swearings in, concluded, the committee gavels passed, and with some last-minute shuffle, new members have found their offices through a flurry of executive orders, a near-record 28 at last count by President Biden, and incidentally, FDR holds the record at 30 executive orders in his first month in office, but the Biden administration is well into its first 100 days. For its part, the 117th Congress got underway in earnest this week with consideration of a budget resolution that will lay the foundation of the next iteration of the legislative response to the pandemic through the budget reconciliation process. And the Senate itself is now formally organized under the terms of a power sharing agreement for a body split 50-50. So all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by, the wheels kick and the wind song and the white sails shaking. Clear sailing from here? Well, not exactly. Uh, if we're sailing, they're pretty stormy waters, but it is the first quarter of a new year, and here at Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas, that always means one thing. Our firm's quarterly slide deck has gone live, and from our perspective and the title of our deck, there's no sailing at all. We're at a crossroads, navigating challenges and choices in a low-trust world. Here to break it all down are our firm's founding partners, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Castagnetti. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Dean. Appreciate it. The only thing you forgot to mention, Dean, is new members moving offices already as well. Yeah, there was a little bit of shuffle there. Maybe good fences make good neighbors, but... Uh... <laughs> I thought Castagnetti was going to say that if it's another uh, January, February, it's another Tom Brady going to the Super Bowl. Uh, we're going to get to that, that Bruce. <laughs> we're going to get to that. Touchdown Tommy coming back. Bruce, let me start with you. Challenges and choices aplenty. Uh, conspiracy theory versus mainstream governance, radical progressivism versus center-left attempts at national unity. What did you have in mind when you titled the deck, and how does lack of trust play into it? How much time you got? You know, <laughs> Dean, in thinking about uh, the start of the year, you know, we always try to lay out what we see ahead. We called the head of the beginning of the 2020 deck uh, hunting black swans, believing that not quite as much as it proved to be, but seeing it as a year when uh, disruption would would go to 11. Um, here, the challenge was in trying to decide which way it could go, radically different alternatives feel almost equally plausible. So when you think about the uh, the COVID situation, on the one hand, I'm hoping that vaccinations prevail, the distribution works out, and that we get to you know the summer of love where we've gotten past COVID. But it's equally plausible that these new mutations from South Africa and the UK uh, prove far more difficult and that people refusing to get the vaccine mean we have yet another summer of masks and, and less travel. You know, that would flow to the question on the economy. You could totally see a roaring 20s relief rally where growth soars with all this pent up potential money for investment. But you could also see the Tesla and uh, and Bitcoin bubbles bursting. You could see a double dip recession. You know, whether with China, we get to what feel like uh, a, a, a better path with confrontation less likely, 
or whether uh, whether it goes the other direction. Just so many things we look at to say nothing of our politics. You know, is this going to be back to the bipartisan compromise um, that we certainly saw after 9-11 or is this uh, more the uh, the trench partisan warfare? And as you mentioned, both parties are amidst civil wars. And while it feels like uh, Joe Biden's going to lead the Dems without true civil war bloodshed, if you told me that AOC announces that she's going to primary challenge Chuck Schumer, I wouldn't tell you why. Well, I never saw that coming. Well, David, how about that? Uh, Democrats have their differences, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on how they're going to bridge the AOC-Joe Manchin divide. But it seems like the Republican Party is approaching or is in an existential crisis. Uh, is this popcorn time for you guys? Just sit back and watch. Uh, I have my uh, caramel corn sitting right next to me, Dean, <laughs> as we speak. So it's perfect. I, you know, it, it it is to a certain degree, right? I mean, watching Kevin McCarthy kind of twist in the wind as he's had to manage a couple of difficult uh, uh, situations over the last uh, week or so, or probably like 10 difficult situations. It's actually, in many ways, that's what's kept the Democratic Party together, right? And there still is that President Trump hangover that is allowing the Democrats to stay together. And as we start to move into legislating, while I think many of the Democrats and certainly President Biden and uh, Senator Manchin have talked a lot about bipartisanship, at the end of the day, you know, Democrats may have to do some things on their own as the president's already done on executive orders, right? Uh, elections have consequences, as we've all heard, and the president has made that clear on many of the executive orders that he's issued. And now he's starting to move a process forward that he believes helps America. And he believes there is some bipartisan support to it when you look at national polling and you know, close to 70% of the public supports what Biden is trying to do. There's a, a letter of 400 uh, mayors, both Democrats and Republicans, that are supporting the positions he's taken. There, there's momentum there to, to get something done, and that's kept the, the Democrats together. I suspect there's going to be plenty of time uh, for the Democrats to eat each other, but I think it's not uh, at this moment. Although, Castro, uh, it makes you wonder, do you feel like as a candidate, President Biden, when he talked about uh, bipartisanship and unity, meant positions that the voters in both parties support? Or did he mean legislative process that included, uh, you know, 60 plus votes? I think he, I think uh, on that, Bruce, I think he meant both, right? I bought good bipartisan ideas that have been vetted through the general public and using the bully pulpit that is another piece of what the president can do to to talk to people uh, and we're talking to people in a much more conventional manner instead of just by tweet um, so th there's there's that piece of it i think in an ideal world would he love to have 60 votes to move a record uh, to move a stimulus bill of course he would on the other side is people are really hurting and he knows he has to help those folks and if it means getting $1,400 to people who make less than $50,000 a year, that's really important to him. And he will do what he has to do to help deliver that at the end of the day. Well, we saw something we hadn't seen in a while this week. Ten Republican senators went down to the White House. President Biden, I would say, was in his element. Senators Collins and Murkowski were overheard 
uh, remarking how President Biden didn't seem to want the discussion to end. It didn't move the needle much in, in, in getting an actual you know, bipartisan regular order bill on COVID relief. But David, what do you think motivates the president in dealing with the other side of the aisle? Yeah, I, I think uh, two things, Dean, right? He's a legislator at the core. He has spent over 40 years uh, in public service helping to cut deals. He's not afraid to cut deals at all. I think on the other side of it, what is motivating him, when you listen to him, the lessons he learned from the 2009 stimulus bill, the bailout bill, was that we didn't go big enough, right? So I think as he's talking to Republicans, he's gauging a little bit where there is some common ground. And I think as, as we looked at it, I, we talked about the, uh, the, the checks going to, to families. Uh, he's already agreed to potentially lower the family limits that to much more in line with what the Republicans want. You know, UI seems like another logical place where he and the Republicans agree they're not off a lot in terms of dollars and the length of time. Uh, I think everyone agrees that you wanna put shots in people's arms and get people vaccinated so we can actually do this in our office and not have to be in our homes. So I, I think for him, it's, it's truly hearing out the other side, capturing those issues, trying to figure out where there is common ground and get a deal. The last thing I would mention, if you think about it for a second, but if you do President Biden, Speaker Pelosi, Leader McConnell, uh, 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 Leader Schumer, there's 153 years of legislative experience that exists amongst those four members. I think they all know when and how to cut deals. Uh, I trust them a great deal to, to do what's right here. You know, as Dean, if I can add on to that, two thoughts. First, it was nice to see a gathering at the White House that is not a super spreader event. So you know, that's a change that's a positive thing. At the same time, I tend to think Steve Perlstein in the Post today was right. Well, he was, you know, he's a clearly not partisan a writer, been doing it for a long time. He says the fight over the aid package is as much about optics as necessity. And uh, the piece that struck me was when he wrote, and I'll quote him, in reality, the 1.9 trillion figure that has taken on totemic importance in the liberal bubble has less to do with economics than with the political necessity to placate the Democratic base and avenge more than a decade of Republican obstructionism. And he follows, of course, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of good ideas in the Biden plan, but he thinks there's a little bit of, we promised this number and by God, we're going to hit this number. You know, if people want to adjust what we spend it on, fine, but we're going to get to this number because we said we would. I think on that though, Bruce, I, you know, the importance of the number is getting money back to people and getting people vaccinated, right? That That's the, the importance of it. And if it's, you know, 1.9 or 1.7, you know, I think there's discussion to, to have a time to have that discussion. But on the other side is that I, I really think this is a time where the economists would say it's okay to overspend and then we'll figure it out later. I, I, I believe that's really what's motivating uh, uh, President Biden in this discussion. Well, the insurrection of January 6th, the Capitol riots uh, continue to reverberate in a lot of different ways and areas. 
But we've spent, all of us have spent the last month uh, counseling our clients on their corporate pack giving. Many have just paused it altogether. Many have paused it to, to those members that, that voted to overturn the uh, results of the Electoral College. Uh, some are deciding whether or not to even stay in the political giving game. Uh, Bruce, you talked a little bit about this in the deck. But what happens when corporations, through their political action committees, just take their ball and go home? Look, within the world of politics, the corporate political action money has typically been supportive of more mainstream, uh, more moderate, more looking to compromise folks. When you take the business money, the corporate PAC money out of the equation, you're likely to get more MTGs and fewer Liz Cheney's which ironically is exactly the opposite of what the corporate PACs would have wanted. And indeed, it's the MTGs of the world that have them take their toys and go home. But we saw it in 2010, Dean, you remember, I remember, it was a wave year. Republicans picked up 63 in the House. Um, this was you know, a lot of uh, anger, a lot of frustration. It was the original birth of the Tea Party before you know, born as a movement, it became a, a, a racket and then it became a business. Um, and you had in, in Delaware, the Joe Biden seat was up because he had become the vice president. And Republican, we knew we were going to have our, our uh, statewide elected representative, Mike Castle. He'd been the governor. He'd won 12 statewide elections in Delaware in a row by an average margin of 30%. It was his seat. Only a Tea Party favorite, Christine O'Donnell, ran against him in the primary. Um, as it we all saw a history proved she was not ready for prime time in the general election, but she beat him in a primary with a very low turnout. To be fair, Castle didn't take it as seriously as she should have. Um, but that's a seat that was 100% Republican pickup under Mike Castle. And instead, the Democrats picked it up and they're going to hold it as long as I think it's Senator Coons uh, wants to hold it. Um, you, you, I think I'd argue you saw the same thing with uh, Sharon Angle in Nevada, where a stronger, more mainstream candidate, I think, could have beaten Harry Reid that year, although Reid seems to always find a way. But he won it uh, tight. Um, you saw the same thing in Indiana. Um, it's, uh, you know, Republicans, when we allow the Civil War to become primary fights, given the nature of the primary electorate, sometimes pick folks who can win a primary but cannot win a general election. And it leads also to other folks deciding they don't want to go through the hassle of that ugly primary. So Jeff Flake decided in 2018, because he thought character matters and he didn't think the president Trump had any, he decided he'd rather say what he believed than keep his, uh, keep his mouth shut. So he said he was retiring in 2018. We lost the Senate seat with the candidate that we were, although she was not quite so out there, uh, McSally, but we lost in 2018, we lost in 2020. Uh, there, if we want to win Pennsylvania, you need a guy like Pat Toomey or otherwise who can appeal to what is inherently a purple-blue state. Dean, if I can uh, pick up on that for a second, I, there are two words I thought I would uh, never hear. One is Liz Cheney as a moderate. That's really pretty <laughs> fascinating to me. The second part is, you know, Democrats don't even want to run against witches anymore. They want to run against MTG, right? That's that's what they're looking at and kind of the rebellion within the party, kind of your point at the beginning, you know, watching the Republicans uh, eat each other during this process. I think that the, the, the way I'd, I'd sum up to the business part packs is, you know, you, your point on them taking a pause here uh, is, is really interesting and everyone's made their own decisions based on what they think is right and whether that's from the donors of the pack of you know the 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 corporate the 
the people who work for the companies donating to the PAC, or it's a, a political decision that they made that they're going to stay out of it. The question I would ask is, what's PAC giving like in the third, fourth quarter of this year or the first quarter of 2022? Does it come back full bore and there's a ton of money back in the system? Or do they continue to move at a much slower process as they figure out what it is their donors want uh, as they give to the corporate PAC? And it is worth noting that if, uh, you know, if, as we all were troubled by January 6th, there are plenty of folks such as John Thune who bear no responsibility, I don't believe, for January 6th, that if they wanted to continue giving to Republicans and Democrats, there are plenty of Republicans um, that, uh, that, that didn't vote against certification of either of those two states. Uh, but to just simply take their packs and go home leaves the field to super PACs, and to increasingly ideological individual donors whipped up with texts and giving over Act Blue and Red and Win Red. Yeah, and David, I'll I'll nuance what you said just a little bit. It is not about being necessarily politically conservative or moderate, but it's about identification with the establishment. And last night, the establishment got one of their first victories in quite some time. Maybe the fact they even had to have the vote was a defeat, but. Liz Cheney garnered 70% of the House Republican caucus to retain her leadership slot. Maybe this is uh, all more smoke than fire. Uh, it's certainly uh, it's certainly a number of members are engaged in performance theater on, on things they don't really believe, certainly on, on the Republican side. Totally. Uh, I, I, I agree uh, with you on that. Theme. The, the other part of it is, as I recall, that also was not a public vote, right? That was a right. behind secret the ballot. Vote. So, you know, it, transparency makes it very different, right? And it'll be interesting as we watch what happens with uh, MTG on the floor today and how many Republicans vote uh, against not allowing her to take her committee seats, right? To me, that's the, the real test moving forward, put your money where your mouth is and, you know, stand up for what you believe in and to try to make the party more mainstream again, right? That it is, you know, as the Democrats fight the wings of their party, the Republicans are being taken over by the wings of their party at this point. And it's all about the 22 midterms. I mean, five seat margin in the House, a tied Senate, Republicans out of power, which the party out of power always usually always has pickups in the Congress uh, well into the double digits. The GOP could not be teed up any better uh, to retake the Hill. Uh, but we're sure trying to lose it, don't you think, Bruce? Look, that's that's definitely the worry for Republicans. When, when you look at historic midterms in the House, you know, the Dems uh, look like it's 222 to 213, at least by, you know, if you don't count Richmond having gone to the White House and others. So that looks like the election results. That means if you flip five seats, you flip control. The numbers in the, in the since Kennedy, uh, the, you know, it's Nixon onward, here are the numbers of House control flips in the president's first midterm. 12, lost 12, lost 15, lost 27, lost nine, lost 54. George W. picked up eight, although that was after 9-11. Obama lost 63, Trump lost 40. Dems have five fouls to give. Boy, it looks uh, tough to hold the House unless 
the Republicans decide through primary contests to say that the most important characteristic for anybody running for the House as a Republican is they have to, you know, believe in QAnon and that Donald Trump won a landslide. I think on that, though, Bruce, what, what, the one thing I would say is I think uh, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, who's taken over the DCCC, I think he's going to have a pretty good year recruiting very reasonable Democratic candidates to run in those seats that the Democrats need to take back this time. You know, the, the Democrats are feeling emboldened, like the president, as we talked about, is doing some things to continue to motivate the base. And that's really important. And again, it's it's a at this stage of the game, it's about candidate recruitment. And, you know, when we're talking about this six months from now, we'll have a better sense of what they've been able to do. Well, guys, a lot to play out. Uh, let's close it out on something a little more fun. Perhaps the greatest quarterback matchup in a Super Bowl uh, coming on Sunday. Patrick Mahomes is poetry in motion. I've never seen a quarterback that can thread a pass uh, with the accuracy that he does. And on the other side, Casto, he's done a lot of good for Beantown, maybe the greatest of all time. Touchdown, Tommy. What's your prediction? You got to go with the goat, Dean. You know, he is it. <laughs> you know, until he proves me wrong, I'm I'm with that guy. And, you know, when Mahomes is going to his 10th Super Bowl at 43 years old, uh, maybe I may change my opinion. But Brady's still the best. You know, takes an old guy past his prime to root for an old guy past his prime. Castagnetti <laughs> Mahomes is going to kick his ass. Uh, it's a new generation. It's a new era. We're post-Trump. We're post Tommy. I don't know, Bruce. I'm, I'm with Casto on this. I, d- d- watching, watching, uh, watching Brady in the championship game. He, he just, you just saw it in the fourth quarter. He just finds a way to win. He knows how to win. He is the goat. I, uh, Bruce. I, I, I may give you a little bit. Yeah, you still got to play the game. So maybe Mahomes pulls it out but you're clearly not past post-Trump yet. So I, I will go there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I wanted to debate Johnny Unitas versus Joe Namath. I mean, come on. <laughs> Bruce Melman, David Castagnetti, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Thanks, Dean.